Hello, I'm Tony. I'm Patrick. Welcome to Cave to the Cross Apologetics. We are working our way through Scott Christensen's book on evil, right? Uh, the specific um, title is What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory. And we are in chapter 7, where now he is talking to us about uh, who God is, who we are, and um, how this now will affect our take in terms of how we can deal with the issue of evil. Exactly. Right? It's based on who God is, right? And so um, he, uh, we're in a section here near the middle of this chapter where he's talking about the incomprehensible, holy, transcendent Lord of all, and he gives us three aspects here of God, his decrees, right? He's the sovereign Lord of all, his decrees, his uh, providence, and then his uh, omnipotence. Mm-hmm. So we just finished with regard to his decrees last time and now let's we we're about ready to move now to his providence god's providence what does that mean well uh, he says that god is not only the architect of history but also it's exe- you know he executes it right he ensures that his plans are carried out per his designs what he has purposed he will do isaiah 46 says this is what Paul means, he tells us, when he tells uh, us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, mm-hmm. Ephesians 1.11. The moment God acts, things happen, right? <laughs> so God's providence is not a general kind of guidance, you know, kind of, you know, roping people in here and there. <laughs> yeah. As free will theists propose, he the, tells the, us. The, um the kitty lanes and that's right. at the bowling. You, you, you can't make them go in the gutter, but you can you can work what, within yeah, the scope yeah, of yeah, your ten yeah. bins. There, he says that is not the case, right. but it is a meticulous providence, right? A finely detailed outworking execution of his decree in the temporal unfolding of history, whereby he superintends every event, action, and creaturely decision. Right, so it is meticulous. Right. right? So uh, good old John Calvin stresses that divine providence is a, not an idle observation by God in heaven of what goes on in earth. You know, he's not looking down and, and you know, TV oh, shows. Oh, this here and there. <laughs> Giant chess pieces. <laughs> or he's twiddling his thumbs and he's like, oh, wait, what was I supposed to do today? Oh, right. Kill off the dinosaurs. Yeah, something like that. But his rule of the world, uh, of, of the world, which he made, for he is not the creator of a moment, but the perpetual governor of mm. all things, mm-hmm. of all of it. The Heidelberg Catechism defines divine providence as the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, Food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry, Vegas, uh, the, the, you, you may be the house, but uh, you don't uh, uh, exist in, in a house uh, uh, separate from God. <laughs> and he tells us that historically divine providence has been understood by Reformed theologians to contain three dimensions. First, uh, government refers to God's specific guidance of history to achieve his desired end, right? That is what he decrees, which we talked about last time. Secondly, preservation refers to God's sustaining power that lies behind the laws of nature. So he preserves his creation, right? We have, you know, such laws are uh, 
you know, laws of nature, just simply uh, a way for us to ac- accurately um, quantify, uh, qualify uh, the fact that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, says Hebrews 1, 3, right? So that's preservation. And then thirdly, concurrence. And this indicates that God's uh, uh, normative manner of working through secondary causes to accomplish his designs, right? Including the laws of nature and the compatibilistically determined choices of human beings. So we have his providence that takes into account God's governs his universe. He preserves it. And then he works within it with regard to concurrence. That's the idea here. Right. Right. And uh, if you if if you've completed a what about evil, and you're like, you know what? I need another giant book to go onto. <laughs> uh, uh, if you go to cavetothecross.com/blog/providence, or just look up John Piper's Providence. Uh, John Piper wrote a book called Providence. It's mm. pretty much the culmination of his life work. I have a spoiler-free review. If you can spoil theology books, but <laughs> I, I, I like to 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 give both highlights and not really lowlights, but things that uh, I, I wish more of. Uh, I did a review of that book, and that book, I mean, just the first chapter alone is worth the, the price of admission. Uh, you you get a full sense of what providence is, and then Piper walks through all of Scripture, and with the page limit that he has, which was almost none, uh, <laughs> he does all of Scripture, from the Old Testament passages uh, right into the New and, and beyond. And so uh, I, I would definitely recommend that book if you're looking for more of this. Well, what is providence? Is providence just... Uh, happy uh, circumstances, uh, you know, the, the, the soldier happens to find on the, on the one dead spy that is in the field of all these dead soldiers, the plans to the next battle is always just a happy <laughs> accent or is there kind of more to it? So recommend that book, uh, com. If you just type in Providence or John Piper, uh, you'll find it that way too. So this indicates the ordinary means of his providence. At other times, God acts directly and immediately to accomplish his purpose, bypassing secondary causes. So he's the actor, and we see that within uh, the scope of Scripture especially and and, and even outside that, but explicitly uh, expressed in Scripture, attributing it to who God is, parting of the Red Sea, that axe head floating, all these things. So this indicates his extraordinary providence. Such rare providential actions include what we call miracles, that which uh, cannot be explained by quantifiable, natural, normal, repeatable processes, the laws of nature, which God is also in charge of. Right. So So God works through secondary means, but he also works directly with regard to miracles, right? right? That's the idea here. The, The providential actions of God, Christensen tells us, Uh, include, you know, and now he's going to give us one of those lists, right? (laughs) The forest, as well as the trees, he sets forth time, seasons, and sweeping epics, determining the status of the nations, places, where men will live and where kings will rule, right? He determines the time and place of all who are born and when and how they will die and what their station in life will be. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, it says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. So this is, you know, specific, detailed, meticulous things that God accomplishes through um, through his providential action. Right. All right. So when the atheist asks you, well, you know, if you were born in Iran 300 years ago, you probably wouldn't be a Christian. You could say, yeah, probably not, because God uh, uh, does all these things, and he does it in the way, time, and place that he, he wants to. 
However, if he wants to make me a Christian, guess what? There are Christians <laughs> 300 years ago in Iran. Yeah. Who, who would have thought? <laughs> but he also acts in the insignificant and mundane realities of his creation. Oh, it's not just parting of Red Seas and, and uh, fires coming down from heaven. <laughs> oh, man, that, that's, that's boring. He feeds the birds and cares for the lilies of the field. Not one sparrow falls to the ground unless God so determines. And so... We apply that, or especially Jesus applies that in Matthew 10, 29, to us, mm -hmm. saying we can have confidence that we're not going to be outside the scope of God's uh, uh, plan by uh, whatever foolhardy thing that we do. However, we want to act and do what God says so that we do things uh, joyfully in conjunction with him. There are no random arrows flying about, First Kings 22. God's universe contains no chance events. Chance is an illusion an ill-conceived notion of a godless worldview. So, mm. uh, you know, um, uh, we tell people, you know, uh, oh, I'm going to go get that job. Well, good luck. <laughs> uh, Whatever God wills, or, yeah. you know, we, we yeah. can gussy it up uh, that way. <laughs> you know, uh, I'll see you tomorrow, uh, Lord willing. So we're just doing the same thing here. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's God's uh, providence. So we see God's decrees. He uh, carries out th those decrees with regard to his providence. And now, you know, he wants us to talk uh, briefly about God's omnipotence, right? He says God's sovereign decree and his providential execution of it would mean nothing unless, you know, he possessed the requisite power necessary to make it all happen, right? And so he says that all Orthodox Christians, including most free will theists, Right. Those are his antagonists that right. he you know, dealt with a couple of chapters ago. But all Orthodox Christians agree that God is omnipotent, right? Possessing the power to do anything that is, and this is what you were getting at last time, logically possible, number one. And secondly, does not contradict his other attributes. So if it's logically possible and it doesn't contradict who God is, he can accomplish that. He has the power, the omnipotence to do that. So he gives us a, for instance, right? God cannot perform pseudo actions such as, you know, um, making square circles or, you know, irresistible forces colliding with immovable forces, right? He cannot do anything unrighteous or uh, unjust, right? So are you saying there's things that God cannot do? Yes, that's right. what we're saying. That's sure. what the scripture says, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So while God's uh, possession of such power is largely uncontroversial in Orthodox theology, what most free will theists deny is God's unrestricted use of such power. Again, uh, when we talked about free will, we, we said that humans seem to have a, a, a far level of freedom that God restricts himself for no other reason than we really, really want free will, this libertarian free will to, to be true. We, right. we want to be able to do what we want because then we have the greatest maximal uh, independence. And so when we come to God, that's that's when we truly love him is when we come to him and, and we say, we, we've done good. Good job, good <laughs> and faithful servant me. You, you've done it. So, But they suppose that God respects the libertarian free will of humans above his own unrestricted, free, and sovereign manifestation of power. For example, Greg Boyd thinks that God rules by love, not control. But this does not accord with the testimony of Scripture that we have seen thus far. Right. And so it's not this this big, scary uh, God in the sky, although God can be scary and we can fear him, and that's the beginning and of he understanding. He can be in the sky. And, 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 and yeah, he can be in the uh, But he's also... Uh, wherever you might go. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he's better than Elf on the Shelf. Um, but but this this type of control 
is clarified and presented in Scripture. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, so that's kind of, uh, you know, these various pictures of God decree his, you know, his providence um, and, uh, you know, his, his power to carry out his decree, right, to operate his providence, right? So that's, those are some of these various attributes of God that he uh, wants us to be aware of right. in terms of uh, uh, this particular issue. Now what he does next is he talks about history's transcendent author, Right? I wonder who that is. Yeah. <laughs> he says, this picture of an unfathomable and transcendent Lord presiding over the wondrous works of his hands lends us uh, to a particular model of divine sovereignty and providence. God doesn't set forth a, a kind of a chain reaction of events, right, in time and space that follow a crass form of cause and effect, right? History is not, he tells us, an elaborate maze of dominoes <laughs> set in motion by the primordial first cause, <laughs> right. right? The determinism that the Bible ascribes to God, he tells us, is not mechanistic, you know, as though we humans were just clogs in a grand machine, Right. To be sure, we must not pretend that we can know the precise manner of how God causally determines the course of events in history. And that's, that's kind of the, the hidden things belong to God and everything else is revealed in Scripture. There is a dynamic mystery to the divine outworking of God's decree, and both sides have to deal with mystery at some point. Mm-hmm. The model that best suits God provides, uh, pro- that best suits God's providence evokes the image of a transcendent author. Yet God is not like a Shakespeare, Milton, Tolstoy or good old Tolkien himself. The Most High is not like an author. He is the author. The human author is like him. Yeah. So he's not like them. They're like him. Right. right? Which uh, someone like (laughs) Tolkien or Lewis or uh, um, um, uh, modern authors, uh, they they, um, kind of express this mythology and they say within the scope of human life and understanding, we are writing stories that that go towards the the you know the three act structure with uh, uh, you you know you have the 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 person and the fall and the rise and the, the resolution and the conclusion and that's the Christian story right there yeah, and and, yeah. and both uh, especially Tolkien and and Lewis recognize this and they they see it in other stories and other patterns and the great stories that we have we see ourselves in them because they speak to the human condition of uh, being part of God's creation, whether the authors acknowledge God or not. Right. And, and in coming chapters, he's going to really explain this kind of authorship and, and, and that sort of thing, right? He says, history is not a chess match whereby God merely anticipates the moves of his creatures, right? Uh, you know, like some grand master. Right. <laughs> right. Well, the bishop's moving sideways. I better, I better yeah. counteract with my rook. <laughs> Such a model, he tells us, of providence places God uh, in the position of acting and reacting uh, in relation to the, you know, um, semi-autonomous plans of others seeking to wrest control of history from themselves for themselves. He says, uh, you know, this kind of idea suggests that his plans operate kind of on the fly, right? They're contingent and dependent on each uh, desperate direction that uh, his creatures take. He says that is not how God operates, right? Right. That's kind of the look down the quarters of time and I chose you because you will choose me, but I don't 
really know what that means because yeah. why does he have to choose me if I'm going to choose him? <laughs> uh, and 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 this this God who uh, kind of struggles to say, okay, I I know Patrick really well, and I know I know he's going to choose the Mountain Dew. Oh, you know what? He accidentally chose not the Mountain Dew. He chose the the Cherry Pepsi. All right, so now and, I'm going to have to do this. Yeah, now <laughs> everything's all upended, and so now the the line of succession moves to the youngest or something like that. So such a God would not invoke our confidence or desire of worship. In contrast, the God that the psalmist declares is a bulwark of, for our trust in him. Psalm 33, 8-9 says, Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So there's no there's no reliance on something else. It's he spoke, and what happened? The last time, the first time he spoke, everything happened, <laughs> <laughs> and he commanded, and things things happened. And so he tells you know uh, 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 Jonah, go to the Ninevites. Jonah's like, I hate the Ninevites. There's <laughs> no way you're gonna get me there. And guess what? He gets there yeah. through through a hook or by fish. <laughs> and then on the beach, he has to stay in the hot sun uh, uh, even more so. If he would have just went there, I'm sure it would have been a nice walk and he would have made friends. No. <laughs> Such a God gives us confidence that when tragedy strikes, when we hoped for good and evil came, and when we waited for light and darkness came, as Job 30 says, there is no need to fret. Mm. God is in control. There's nothing outside. Yes, things might befall us. We might be in pain. We might suffer. Uh, again, this, this all leading us towards further uh, clarification discussion on what evil is. So uh, we're we're not we're not uh, we don't trip down a well and suddenly we're hidden from God and God's looking out for us. And and that's uh, again uh, in Genesis uh, three when uh, Adam and Eve fall falls. You know, oh, God is searching for him. Adam, come out. Where are you? Mm-hmm. There, there's there's something happening there. He's not he's not actually asking this because he's lost sight of who right. uh, where, where where Adam and Eve is right. in the world that he made. He's he's doing it for a purpose there. Yeah, yeah, good. And so uh, next, what he does then is you have this powerful God who works providentially throughout all of his creation to accomplish his will. What does that do for us in terms of our choosing, right, in terms of our ability to make choices? And so that's what he does deals with next, right, the compatibility of divine and human actions. He says when we consider God's sovereignty over the forest, few people object, right? Oh, yeah, you know, he's, he's over the forest. But when we consider sovereign control over individual trees, people start to squirm in their seats, right? <laughs> Especially if those trees include the leaves, branches, trunks, roots of their own personal lives, right? And so this fact, he says, um, human actions are not exempt from the providence of God, but represent the particular emphasis of Scripture. He says God's fixed decrees includes the future action of specific individuals. Human choices, he says, are determined by God, right? right? So even our choices are determined by God. Now, again, we're going to have to work. He's going to have to work that out for us because, you know, it sure it seems like I'm making my own choices, <laughs> right? And I am not, is he saying I'm not, a, that I'm a puppet? Well, we'll have to see, right. but he's he's clearly not saying that, right? We just think we're puppets or we <laughs> don't think we're puppets because we're being very well puppeted. That's right. <laughs> 
But this does not entail some notion of Christian fatalism, this uh, oxymoron, if there ever was one. (laughs) God is not a grand puppet master, and we are not dangling marionettes devoid of active minds, emotions, desires, and wills. We're not not these robots. We're, we're, We're making real choices with real consequences that proceed from real deliberations, motives, circumstances that shape the outcome of those choices. Those things are happening, and we're held responsible for them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can, can I go back to being a robot? <laughs> Robot's easy. Nonetheless, those choices dovetail perfectly with the sovereign determinations of God. This is known in today's philosophical parlance as compatibilism. Yeah. And uh, again, what we're going to go through, uh, we talked about uh, with him in, uh, I think, episode 13 with his interview of his book, uh, What About Free Will? And so, again, uh we're not going to be able to cover everything just as he doesn't cover everything there. He wrote another book first to do that. So if you have more questions, uh, we didn't answer them correctly. See the book. (laughs) So what is this compatibilism idea? How do we define compatibilism? What's going on with compatibilism? Well, it tells us that the Westminster confession statement on God's eternal decree begins by saying God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. But he tells us, then the statement makes uh, this important qualification yet. So as thereby neither is God, the author of sin, nor is uh, violent offered to the will of the creatures, right? Nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, right? And so he's going he's gonna, to um, kind of, uh, you know, uh, pursue this a little further, but he doesn't, our will, violence isn't offered to our will, right? And nor does he take away the um, liberty and contingency of our particular decisions, right? So he's going to pursue that here uh, a little further. Right. Uh, we will consider the statement about God's being the author of sin in chapter 9, so kick the can a little <laughs> bit further down the road. Uh, uh, but for the moment, let us focus on the last two clauses. Quote, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So the confession affirms compatibilism. Biblical compatibilism states that God's meticulous sovereignty, that is determinism, he determines, is compatible with human freedom and responsibility. Hmm. So we're not robots, but we're also not fully free or libertarianly free. Yeah. And so he says, uh, you know, this uh, there's a, a dual explanation for every choice that human beings make, right? There's two explanations for it, ours and God's. God's sovereign determination serves as the, what he calls sufficient primary ultimate, right? But, uh, uh, remote cause of our choices while we serve as a secondary but proximate that is the near or immediate cause of our choices so we have god's is the primary cause and we're the secondary cause of our choices right so he says while there's some degree of mystery in acknowledging this double agency right where we're doing it and god's doing it dual causation he says there's nothing contradictory in affirming it um he quotes quotes uh, Paul Helm. He says he brings this out clearly. Paul Helm says the primary cause, God, 
is an enabling and sustaining cause, making possible secondary causes and setting bounds to them, right? So there we have this dualistic kind of double agency uh, causality mm-hmm. that, he's, that he wants us to understand. So who's, who, who causes my actions? I do, and God does. Right, right, right. I'm, I'm the closer one, but God is also there. Uh, uh, He's the ultimate. Uh, ultimate, right. Yeah. Uh, and again, we, we, I think we want this to happen with the view of, of who God is. Because if something isn't in his control then it's apart from God and it exists independent from God. And it could be out of his control. Right. I mean, if it's not in, it's got to be out of his control. And do we want a world where it's out of God's control? Right. Right. So again, that's not what the scripture implications to it. And right. Again, what, what, what is our ultimate starting point scripture? Yet God's causal power is rarely, if ever directly experienced. You know, we don't, we don't uh, uh, hear the voice from heaven saying, Choose the pancakes. Or feel God moving my hand. <laughs> right, right? Right. <laughs> Most people are unaware that he stands behind the choices they make. In this regard, God fixes providential direction, is never coercive. He never moves people to act against their will. This is in spite of the protestations of those like Paul's interlocutor in Romans 9. Good old Romans 9. We always go back to Romans 9. 19, who says, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? And exactly that, that's, that's the person. That's the reason that chapter nine of Romans is being, being written because there are still questions of, of, well, what about the Jews? Why are they, why, why are yeah, they I still thought there? God made promises to the Jews. Is he not going to keep them? You know, and you right. know, if that's and then, you know, if he caused them then to go astray so that he can give grace or mercy to the Gentiles, then why can we find, how do we find fault with right. what they do? Right. right. And, it's and, God's fault. <laughs> and, and one of the kind of like good word pictures that, that I, I like going back to that, that idea of, of God being the ultimate author if I, if you know, if I were to ask you, like, okay, um, uh, Tolkien, why does why does Gandalf uh, uh, help Frodo out? Well, because get uh, because Tolkien wrote it that way. He helps he helps uh, Frodo because uh, that's that's how Tolkien wrote, right? But but like, why does Gandalf help Frodo? Well, because Tolkien wrote him that way. Okay, sure, I understand that, but in the context of the story, why does Gandalf help Frodo? Well, because he appreciates the the simplistic and 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 complex nature of what the the Baggins and the Tooks family uh, that that ultimately uh, uh, gives us uh, the the Hobbit adventure, hmm. and then uh, the, the the desire for for Frodo to take the ring to Mount Doom. Okay, but which one is it? Yes. Yeah, it's right. both. It's right. Tolkien author, and Gandalf. Right. right. Yeah. It's it's the author and the 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 character he has written. And if if Gandalf were to suddenly, uh, well, for wizards it's probably a bad bad mm. terminology. But if he were to uh, suddenly turn into a rocket ship and head to Mars, uh, whoa, hold on, that I didn't know he could do that. That <laughs> seems kind of antithetical to who this wizard character is. So you say yes. If if if, if this was done, it was done. Uh, 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 against the character's character. Yeah, exactly. He's no longer that character. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, when the Roman 
919 uh, in a lockier asked these questions. Why does God still find fault if he's in control, right? Who can resist his will? You know, the implication is that God is morally blamable, culpable for people's actions, even their sinful ones. But uh, Christensen tells us, and, and we find this in James 13, is rather, um, uh, you know, he, uh, empathetic, right? He says, James says, let no one say uh, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, right? So it's not God's fault, right? He's emphatic on this particular point. He tells us that one of the major implications here is that God does not infuse an uh, evil will into the one who sins. God doesn't kind of put that, you know, infuse that evil will. Right. In fact, Satan doesn't coerce people either, right? So God doesn't force us to do it, and neither does Satan. Satan doesn't have the power to force us, right, in terms of... Uh, unless we're possessed, right, right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> to do anything, yeah. right. So the evil one's temptations are powerful and um, debilitating, and we find that in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, but sinners willfully abide by the desires of the devil, right? Mm -hmm. We follow our father, John 8, 44, yeah. and we do it of our own accord, yeah. right? We, we do see kind of the strain a little bit, uh, and it's, it's covered twice, but... Uh, God sends a a a, a um, spirit to David to count the troops or to 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 do a census, something that he was commanded explicitly not to do as a result of his sin uh, with Bathsheba. And so, uh, the the desire for David is there. He he's not he's not being tempted by God, but God allows temptation to come upon him, and his actions are known of of what will happen to God because. Uh, that's yeah, in fact, he sends the the temptation. Right, he right. sends and it. Given yeah. the three choices there yeah. as well, um, and so so the, this. Oh well, you know, here it says that that God God does tempt because He sends the Spirit. Well, again, we talk about primary and secondary causes, and God allowing things to happen. And uh, even James one talks about uh, when when you come upon trials, count them as as good because you're being tested. Your your faith is being strengthened. You know, it's it's like working out. You you break down muscle to build it up, and you become stronger. So again, when when we when you talk about these things, and we say, oh, you know, this is the this is a, a, a issue with scripture. We we again have to to read the context and understand the the, the what what's being talked about and and all these things. And so um, that tends to be the one where where I I I see people drawing parallels. Oh, here God's tempting David, but it says God doesn't tempt anyone. Mm -hmm. There, there, there's the nuance within there. Yeah. So ultimately, the sinful inclinations of the heart instrumentally determine whether temptation is given into. All right. So notice, here is a here. I walk by a a bar, right, and uh, people there are drinking. That's I don't drink alcohol, and so I have no problem right. with walking by. But the person who's an alcoholic walks by the same bar, right. They then are tempted, right? So, so you know, are we saying then that God sent that temptation? Well, yes and no. He's in control of it, right? But it, it's the person, right? And so we can have a, you know, we can have a character trait that, that we are disposed to alcoholism. And so, you know, we, we go into the bar and, 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 and do that. We, right? we could have taken the longer route home <laughs> and right. avoided the, the, 
the bar lane, but yeah. no, we, we, we happen to just so find ourselves in the neighborhood. Right. So, so again, the, the point is, you know, what's the source of the temptation? The heart. Yeah. Right. We always choose according to the matrix of internal dispositions and external temporal influences. Those that exist in time. So, uh, we, we, uh, have what's, what's in our nature and character and then also outside influences is what it's saying. That directs us, those internal and external, that directs us to the path that we are most inclined to take. We always choose what we want most, uh, what we most want to choose. And what we most want to choose corresponds to our strongest motives, desires, and internal inclinations as influenced by a variety of external factors. And again, we, we, can, we can tell ourselves, well, I want to forgo... Uh, food for this meal, yeah, uh, because you know I want to fast. Well, that's still the desire. That's the yeah, the that's ultimate what you want. Right? To I do. want food, <laughs> yeah. but my ultimate desire is to forgo food. Yeah. And so those yeah. those factors that that internal, both uh, um, I want to do this and external, like it'll make me more healthy, or you know, if, if within the Christian context, we're we're doing it for a, a spiritual purpose there, such uh, as our immediate circumstances are. In, interpersonal interactions, our upbringings, our education, our, the influences of authority figures, the sources of media we consume, and so forth. All those things are factors that influences our decisions, but ultimately what we do is all those things uh, interact and, and um, inform what our ultimate desires are. And so when all is said and done, he tells us, as Jonathan Edwards says, a man never in any instance wills anything contrary to his desires— or desires anything contrary to his will. Right? <laughs> uh, another way to put this, he tells us, uh, is that we act in a way that seeks to preserve our self-interest. Right? We will make contrary choice only if the antecedent factors lead to a sufficient motive that appeals to our own self-interest and inclinations. Right? And you know, the issue is, well, is there anything wrong with this? Right. right? And, and I really like this example. So choosing based on this natural self-love is reflected in what? The golden rule. Yeah. Self-interested love is built in preservation mechanism that drives our decision-making and Jesus and Paul acknowledges. Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Right. Talking about both aspects and, and that desire that, well, we would want... Uh, to be pleased, and this is the path and direction we would want someone to do. Uh, you know, even if it's, I want to, I, I would want someone to cook me a meal, but I want them to ask me first. So I should want them to ask, not just show up randomly right. when the house is and a so mess. And so I should do I that to them, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. On the other hand, our sense of self-preservation is often caught between conflicting motives. We are compelled to choose the lesser of two evils. I don't want to give this this thug, this this robber, <laughs> All my money, but I then really want don't want the forty five caliber he is pointing at my head to expel all my brain matter on the sidewalk. So I will reluctantly give the man the money. Right. So the, there's I think it's a, a old Jack Benny joke of your money or your life, and he goes, "Well, well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Decisions are eventually made once a clear and even if slight a winner emerges out of the matrix of conflicting and competing motives. That battle within, right? And and again, uh, I, I I hate to do it, but uh, Austrian economics points to this. We we have subjective value, and we all have different subjective values. And economics, this economic system, points to 
uh, fulfilling those desires in a, uh, a kind of a sequential order of of priority. And, mm. and we see even those things reflected in things like economics. Yeah, exactly. And so he kind of summarizes here to help us to make sure, make sure we're with him here. He says, first, we choose what we most want to choose, right? We choose what we most want to choose. Second, what we most want to choose stems from our strongest motives as influenced by various internal and external factors. Uh, but third, he says, all moral and spiritual decisions are circumscribed by the spiritual condition of our heart. Right. So we, you know, those, those decisions are based on our heart's condition. The language of our heart is the anthropology of the Bible that speaks to our basic spiritual and moral nature as human beings. The default position of every person is to be enslaved to a fundamentally corrupt nature at the core of our souls. It wasn't always like that, but this is the world that we operate in. It's the one we're born into. It's the one we are brought up in. It's the one we survive or fail to survive in. It's the one we exist in. In order for us to make choices that have any kind of genuine moral and spiritual value, a radical change must take place within. Well, I wonder if the Bible talks about that at all. <laughs> Divine grace must radically renew our corrupt nature so that our hearts are effectually and irresistibly enabled to choose Christ for salvation. The Bible says that I've taken your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. The thing that can't move, the you know, like, I can't get blood from a stone. He makes that stone fleshy so that yeah. it can bleed. Thus, regeneration of uh, of necessity must precede faith. So, regeneration, then faith, making salvation truly and wholly a work of grace. Right. So, to say by grace through faith, that's what Ephesians chapter two right says. Yeah. Right. It's not of ourselves. It is a gift. The of golden God. chain of redemption and 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 uh, Romans eight there. So what's the biblical uh, evidence for compatibilism? Well, he gives us several scriptures here, just uh, maybe a couple that we want to focus on, right? There are many. There are many. He says the evidence for the dual agency making biblical compatibilism is pervasive in scripture. Uh, The book of Proverbs contains general statements to this effect. The heart of man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps, right? Right. 16.9. Um, and then in 1921, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand, right? And then 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Yeah, but, right? but the king is the ultimate decider of things. I don't understand how God can do that. He must respect his libertarian free will to do what he wants. He's the king after all, yeah. except there's a king of kings. That's the right. Lord of That's right. <laughs> I set my one up, uh, myself up for that one. <laughs> Isaiah declares, Oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Mm-hmm. Many similar passages indicate that people serve as God's uh, providential instruments. And uh, Romans 9 even um, uh, brings forth that. Uh, and that's actually uh, uh, not a, a um, citation from Isaiah, but it's from a different passage that I'm sure he'll get into. Such texts never convey a sense of divine coercion or that somehow people's choices are made mindlessly or unwillingly. The work of salvation and of sanctification that accomplishes it is wholly of God and his grace, but this does not leave its recipients in a state of passivity. Mm-hmm. I, I, I always go back to... Uh, the end of, of Genesis, where he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So the brothers sold Joseph in captivity. 
Why? Because they desired to get him away from the Father and their lives and horribleness and, oh, you're having dreams about right. us bowing down before you. They get wanted out to of here. do evil toward right. Joseph. And so right. their yeah. libertarian free will gave them that, and God had to scramble to, 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 <laughs> to uh, have, have the, the nomadic slave traders come at that same time, and then Potiphar to choose him, and then him to not give him temptation so that he wouldn't be killed when uh, Potiphar's wife had, and then he's put in charge of the prison, and he survives in prison, and then he has to happen to meet the the cupbearer and the the uh, baker. The, the baker, yeah. and then he, uh, Pharaoh has to listen listen to him after seven years of being in prison, and all these things have to happen so that he can get to the end of yeah. of of his father's life and say what you intended for evil. And, God and, and God is not up there wiping the sweat <laughs> yeah. off of his head. Okay. I need a breather. Time really. out. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone freeze. We're going to zero Calvin here. I need to take a break and, and hit the locker room. <laughs> yeah. So Isaiah declares uh, uh, this and, and, and that uh, salvation then is ultimately um, uh, the culmination of, of the work because uh, all the things that happen to get Christ on the cross and, and to pay for our sins, all those, all those choices, all those people are so many things that could have gone wrong so that God had to come up with a backup plan. But he says before the foundations of the world, Jesus was going to come and, yeah. and, and pay for our sins this way. It's what the entire old Testament, the temple, all these things, the, 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 the boring parts of Leviticus were all designed to point towards Christ. <laughs> Yeah. So the idea here is we choose, but we choose what God wants us to choose, right? right? So it's a both and, it's a compatibilism. <laughs> That's the idea that he wants us to see here that the scriptures teach, right? All right, so we've worked our way to the end of this chapter. And the very Didn't last portion, yeah, yes. he talks about uh, the God of evil because we still have to deal with this evil issue, right? We have provided, he says, a biblical vision of God's sovereignty and meticulous decree in which he ensures that the, uh, you know his blueprint for history will providentially come to fruition. He says, but uh, we have also shown that God's sovereignty is not at odds with the voluntary choices of you know responsible and willing agents. Scripture uh, clearly affirms both facts, right? God's sovereignty, but yet our free will, we're free to choose, and therefore we're responsible. Here's the question, though. How do these facts bear on the ubiquitous presence of evil in the world, right? That's the issue. And he, Drawing it back. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, the question is, does God's sovereign will encompass that which violates his moral precepts? Ooh. Indeed, his own moral character. Does God have a hand in those things? Is that what we're saying? Mm -hmm. Does God merely allow evil or is it part of his eternal decree for history? Mm. Again, look at Christ on the cross. That should be the ultimate example that we need to point to as uh, whatever side you're on, we have to look at that culmination of history right there, the peak of, of, of history. And if it is part of his eternal decree, then how can he escape the charge that he is to be ultimately blamed for a plan that includes what we know is destructive to human flourishing? It appears to violate his impeccable goodness. This is the most difficult question that Reformed theology faces. How does it address this charge? Next two chapters. All right. All right, so you cliffhanger yeah. there, right? Right. <laughs> right. right. So, um, again, if, 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 if there's um, uh, stuff that we didn't break down uh, well enough, 
uh, check out his other book. He does a fantastic job. Uh, what about free will of, of presenting the other side, their best case uh, using the language that they would want. Uh, I, 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 I really got a good sense that he was fair and honest with presenting the best case for libertarian free will and then also explanations to that. And so, again, you can find our, our interview with him. You can find links to the book. And in the back of the book, there is both further reading, which talks about uh, what about free will, John Frame's The Doctrine of God, Paul Helm's The Providence of God, and then if you want the advanced reading, uh, we, of course, have to conclude uh, The Freedom of the Will by um, Jonathan Edwards, but also this uh, J.A. Crabtree, The Most Real Being, A Biblical and Philosophical Defense of Divine Determinism, and there's, uh, you know, a, a, a well number of well-respected um, uh, different uh, uh, books out there uh, for really cheap that, uh, that talk about uh, this compatibilism and um, uh, R.C. Sproul has probably written some free books that are that are out there too. So you can find links to those in the description or in the back of the book. So uh, right. if I just list this one book, you can find them all. So again, thank you for joining us. Thanks for uh, um, working through the book with us. You know, what do you think so far about the book? Uh, it does, is it uh, building up uh, the, the case enough and are you continuing on? And uh, um, ho- hopefully that... Uh, um, uh, we are making the case that we must ultimately um, adhere ourselves to an ultimate uh, standard, and that's why we're going through the the different um, characteristics of God because it's from that uh, ultimate starting point that us Christians would want to build our case uh, from from a uh, a top down perspective and not a bottom up. Where okay, we've made some good uh, philosophical. Um, uh, mixtures here and they don't seem to counteract except sometimes they do. So uh, <laughs> we, we, we need to live in light of the revealed will um, or we're not Christians. And so yeah. uh, that, that brings up further discussion. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. See you next time.